It's Monday, January 15th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 145 of the 5049 podcast. Thank you for joining us for another conversation, a conversation between myself and another musician, a conversation about uh, the creative trajectory about about navigating the minefield of life. Um, today's a really good conversation. Today on the show, guitarist, social worker, activist, composer, improviser, Chris Cochran is with us. Chris Cochran, that's who you hear playing guitar back there. Chris has been around for a long time and um, has some good stories to tell. Today's a good one. Today's a really good one. Today on the show... Chris Cochran. Before we get started, I just want to remind you that if you are enjoying this show and you want to help out, please do one or or both of these two things. Please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to it in iTunes. That goes a long way. That helps the show get more visibility within that platform, uh, which brings in more listeners. So, so please consider doing that if you haven't already. And then the other thing and uh, is, is consider contributing a little money to the show. How do you do that? There's a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Uh, it's essentially a listener-supported model. You sign up. You, you agree to pay a certain amount every month that your card will automatically be charged. It could be a dollar. It could be $5. It could be whatever you think is appropriate. Uh, but it helps, and it helps keep the show running strong. It helps uh, you know, deal with expenses that come up that are associated with the show. And, uh, and that's it. If, if, if you're digging the show, please consider doing one or both of those things. Okay, today on the show, Chris Cochran. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, today's a really good one. Today's a really, really good one, and it's one that I, uh, I wanted to happen for a long time. Um, Chris and I actually began the conversation of, of, having, uh, of doing one of these uh, years ago before I pulled the plug on the original version of this podcast, um, and I'm so glad that it finally happened. Uh, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with Chris, he's a guitar player, an improviser. He's been in New York playing in and around the downtown scene uh, since very early on. Uh, kind of since the beginning, um, in, in as far as you know, the group of people that I tend to talk to on this show. He first moved to the city in 1980, um, and very quickly got involved with what was happening, uh, you know, around the scene uh, of people like you know Zorn and Anthony Coleman and Zena Parkins and and this particular group of people. I've now known Chris for a number of years, maybe, I don't know, six or seven years, and he's always a delight to talk to, and he, um, you know, he's got a lot of insight uh, in, in, into this world of music and into this world of music making. One reason specifically I wanted to talk to Chris um, is he has done a tremendous amount of work uh, in the last several, you know, two decades as a social worker. At some point uh, uh, in time, after making a bit of music in New York, Chris realized that it would be important for him to, to do some other work in addition to the music, uh, you know, one for practical reasons, um, but also for, for meaningful reasons. And, and he became a social worker, specifically working with people and issues related to HIV and AIDS. More recently, he's been working for a company called Harlem United, which, as I understand it, uh, works to help people from impoverished areas 
who don't currently have health insurance get health insurance to help them navigate a very confusing system. Um, this is really honorable work. I've always thought that, or I've frequently thought throughout the years that, you know, if I were to go to school, go back to school, um, you know, what I might be interested in is some version of social work and therapy. And, and I think Chris has done uh, a lot of exceptional work. And it was definitely one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him today. And because of this aspect of um, Chris's life and work, you know, the first maybe 20 minutes of this conversation uh, aren't about, it, it's not about music at all. Just let you know that right now. If you want to hear about music, then, um, you know, it ain't going to happen in the first 20 minutes. The first 20 minutes, we talk specifically um, about current political issues, the current climate, as well as uh, what's been happening in New York for the last 30 plus years. Um, I hope you guys dig it. Um, I, I think Chris is, is a wonderful guy. I think he's an exceptional guy. And this, this conversation, quite honestly, is, is I think one of the better ones in this whole podcast series. Um, there's a lot to learn from it. Listening back to it while I was editing it, I, I, was, I was reminded of that, that I really, really enjoyed this conversation a lot. If you want to find out more about Chris Cochran, go to thechriscochran.com. He's, he's been staying pretty busy these last few years, uh, performing with his band Collapsible Shoulder, improvising with people like... Billy Martin and Esther Ballant, uh, Brian Chase, Zena Parkins. Uh, he, he's a tremendous guy. He's a great player, and, and I strongly urge you to check him out. Go to thechriscochran.com. And that's it. Um, I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Chris Cochran. You don't know if you're getting a clue. You don't know anything that's working. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. You can't Yeah. Yeah, so wait. The last time I saw you, I, I feel like we were talking about something sort of <laughs> perhaps equally uplifting. I saw you at that show in Brooklyn um, at the quarry. Yes. And we were talking about you were you were working with people, getting them proper insurance or oh, something. Oh, yeah. That's my day job. Um so what I do, what I am, what I do, I'm a social worker. Right. Right. So uh, um, I work at a place called Harlem United, and I am, it's an AIDS service organization, though that's changing because uh, HIV and AIDS are becoming more manageable, uh-huh. let's say. Also funding. Wasn't there something big in the news yesterday? With well, yeah. Trump just. You. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I mean, every day. Every day. It's 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 hard to fathom. How old are you? Fifty nine. Fifty nine. I mean, I, so I've I've been talking to people a bit older, you know, like my mom's age. You know, she's seventy. Mm-hmm. About how they're dealing with now versus you know the period around Vietnam, when, right? With Nixon when, and such, for all, sure. Well, even just before then, when all of our leaders were being assassinated, mm-hmm. and and you know, every single day, young people were being sent to you know to get killed, and how the general sense of unease compares to to now. And almost to a person, they say it's worse now. Yeah, I don't think I've again. So I sort of, I sort of lived through that. I mean, it's interesting. It's one of the reasons to go to Vietnam. It's a longer story because you're about I, to go there on a trip. Yeah, it's sort of um, some ways to pay homage to the people there. Um, I'll have to look up this book while I'm here. There's a great book by a Vietnamese writer uh-huh. that uh, really turned the war on its head to me. I mean, people in Vietnam called it the American War, right? It's not, right. The, it's not the Vietnamese War. Right, right, right. Um, what was my point? So 
yeah, I grew up during that time. It's never felt like this. I mean, Reagan, it's funny because I was in college and I, you know, I was doing a lot of drugs with Reagan, but sort of I got here and AIDS crisis happened. So I was aware of his not paying attention to things and slashing social services, but it was never, it never felt like this. This feels like a whole. This feels like a determined sense of undermining people's stability. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that's so bizarre, you know, like Trump does this interview and what they find within 75 minutes, he says all these lies and inaccuracies. Right. So he seems like an idiot. Yes. At the same time, he's dismantling government. He's dismantling all these things that have been put into place. So either he's like a puppet of the Republican Party, and so we're distracted by his idiocy and all this other stuff is going on, or he's an incredibly intelligent man. I mean, intelligent, I don't mean in a good way, but things are getting dismantled. In a very systematic way. Very systematic. Like Which, you're seeing, it's, it's like repeating itself every couple of days, it seems right, like. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and it will take a very long time to put those things back in place. So that's scary, much less him interacting on the international level. Right. Like, what's that going to look like? I, but on, yeah, on a very simple domestic level of just taking care of the people, helping to take care of the people who can't take care of themselves, he's really got that in his crosshairs. Right. For sure, or or is it the Republican Party? Did they feel? Like, I mean, they've always wanted to, so it's right. Yeah, Did they really feel like they the got this like this perfect person in place so they could do all this work? I, I think there was genuine like uneasiness with him because he so aggressively ripped the mask off of who they really were. Right, you know, right. like he completely did away with any niceties, but. They have they, all all those same evil bastards like have to be happy with the outcome of his of his actions. They must be. They have to be. They must be. Yet they play. Uh, well, yeah, they don't really criticize him really. <laughs> so, but so you you mentioned the AIDS crisis and Reagan's sort of well, very very clear inaction towards it. Correct. But it just, but it it felt like you, people were being maligned more than. Uh, right so a different type of evil if you will i mean it felt like there were people being targeted and not excuse me given resources here it seems like it seems which was awful and a lot of people died and it was awful here it seems <laughs> the scope is broader of who he's taking services away from right and it seems more on a national level that he's taking things away where there and again, I, I'm not condoning Reagan. It, w it was not putting things into place. Here he's dismantling. So it just seems yeah, yeah, yeah. different. It's really several steps beyond. Right. I mean, there has to be some kind of protocol for any crisis if you're a leader, no? Right. I mean, so if you look at like what happened in Puerto Rico over the summer, it's like it's, it's crisis. There's panic. No one knows what's happening. So the first call is to do what? Right. And certainly, you know, in the 80s, you know, with, during the AIDS crisis, no one knew what was going on. What was the correct thing to do? as a first order of business mm -hmm. and to I mean, what we saw with with this idiot um over the summer was to actively be dismissive towards it correct yeah but see he did that with aids too because again uh, he didn't even mention it for a couple years yeah right? 
he could have put things into place. It's like this thing is happening. Let's get the CDC on it. Let's like investigate it, but didn't do that. Right. Didn't put funding in there. The only reason funding started happening is because people became activists over it and really, you know, advocated to get services happening. Right. I mean, Mayor Koch wasn't doing anything. Well, no one was that, doing, that's right. a very specific conversation. Right. You know, so th- people, yeah, it's just, it just feels different now. It feels, it's hard to stay hopeful. Right. I uh, mean, that, right. That's the thing, right? How do you do that? Well, how do you do that? I don't know. I mean, you, I feel like you have to come up with answers to that probably uh, in more concrete terms on a regular basis more than I do. Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, because, oh, I don't know. I mean, you work with people, I have to imagine, who are dealing with pretty dire situations. And there's this thing, like, you know, I have a relative, for instance, and I'm trying to remember the term that this therapist explained to me, who he has he has um, chemical imbalances and psychological troubles, but he also has substance abuse problems. So when you're parsing out what's what, it's really hard to tell what's what because mm-hmm. these things are so intermingled. Correct. So if you're a person who is, you know, at your, let's say, you know, you're, you're dealing with an illness, you have no money, you, you can't navigate the insurance system, but you're also dealing with the sort of uh, interconnected depression that we're feeling as a people, as our humanity is killed, like, it, it, it's helpful to at least be able to separate what these things are on a right. day-to-day basis. Right. Yeah, not easy, right? I mean, again, um, it's interesting feeling hearing less of it. I don't know why. So, you know, the story of people being picked up by ICE, right? Right. I'm assuming you're a citizen. Yeah. You and I do not have that daily stress. Right. Of worrying about our status, whether someone's going to come at our door and take away our family or a family member. Right. Or, our enti- or separate our entire family. Right. What's that feel like on a daily basis? I don't know. Abject horror. Right. Yet, they still have to work, still have to get their kids to school, have to do all those things. Right. You know, and so in some respect, I mean, that's an example. And then possibly some people um, have compromised immune systems and are dealing with illnesses, you know, all of that. So the agency I work with is trying to support people that are struggling with all of that. That's a big... Right, right. That's insane. That's quite a workload. Plus, so we're doing that, much less there's what's going on with the Trump administration that we don't know where funding, what funding's going to look like, plus that big tax debacle that just happened. What's money going to look like in the next couple of years? We have no idea. Yeah. So above me in the agency, I'm sort of middle management, so the agency is trying to figure out how to diversify so money keeps coming in because most of the money is federal and state. And so they have to diversify where they're getting the money, much less they have to start building programs that aren't all HIV specific. Right. So there's that stress too. So the staff is feeling the stress from the clients and feeling the stress from above. It's, it's intense. Yeah. It's intense. It's a bad time. Right. And yet you still have to get your work done and, you know, help people. It's right. crazy. Right. You know? I mean, the, the fact that the bottom line of a company that, like the company that you work for, is to see people uh, live better lives and do better right. <laughs> versus the bottom line of the people that just receive these huge tax cuts, which is, you know, personal gain. It's, it's insane that there's even uh, a conversation about whether or not these are worthwhile organizations. Well, right. That's where the... It, seemingly, this administration—it's broader. It's—it's, it's, you know, 
um, during the AIDS crisis, it was definitely people that were sick, and gay people, and again, it was Haitians at that time. And here, it's just like people that are middle class and working class and sub working. But class. but how much of of the overall conservative climate is about villainizing? I don't want to use the word victim. But but demonizing gay people during the AIDS crisis, demonizing people of color, you know, when you're talking about social welfare, how much of it is is creating animosity towards people that need help? I think it's a lot of that. But to me, you know, I, I then I all of a sudden become really naive. I don't understand that. I'm you know, again, maybe I'm just really naive. I don't understand hate. Like, right. So wh- why do you want to disempower all these people? What value is that going to create? I mean, to me, it, it seemingly is going to be create a system of more inequity where those people are going to need more resources. Right. right. Unless you're just going to let them die. But I don't think, is that what they think? Or do they really believe their ideology that giving more money to wealthy people is going to trickle down at... Yeah, Se- seemingly not. I, I, I get. Confused. I don't know. I, I feel like at this point they've, you know, metaphorically they've got their bags packed to go to Mars. <laughs> like they, you know, it's true. <laughs> it's like let's get out of here. But, but I mean, it's interesting to me, moderately interesting, you know, that Paul Ryan wants to retire next year. It's like okay, I'm going to do all this damage and I'm going to get out of here before it gets really fucked up. Yeah, I mean, he's done his big work and he's going to get paid for. He's going to get paid and he's not going to have to answer to it. And he's not going to be held accountable or have to to deal with the repercussions. Right, I'm going to leave. I'll see you. I mean, that's what it seems like. It seems maybe. I mean, it's funny the name of that record. Um, it seems more like immediate. Like I'm only going to take care of myself and my time on the planet i don't really care what happens in the future right but is that how they think i don't that just seems it has to be i guess it has to be but you have children you have there's future don't you aren't you concerned about that i guess if you think you have all these resources then you don't have to worry about the future because your family's taken care of i mean if you look at the amount of disparity and i swear we'll talk about music but if you look at the amount of disparity you know if you have someone like in this neighborhood that we are right now who doesn't have you know fifteen hundred dollars to their name and is looking at a family you know of four or five children and those idiots you know these bastards have millions of dollars and three children and own property you know there's they're in a much uh, stronger position to, to sustain. Worry. They don't have to worry. So why not? Just, why not make that stronger and build a firewall between me and the people that don't have it? Right. I suppose. I mean, it's interesting. In my building, my neighborhood um, called Prospect Lefferts Gardens, which is really just a real estate designation. It's really the beginning of Flatbush. Right. Um, when I moved into my neighborhood, it was mostly West African and Haitian, and now. I've been there 18 years, gentrified greatly. I was the only, with the exception of one older woman, I was the only white person in my building. Now I'd say it's probably two-thirds white people. Really? Um, And some of the families that have been there for a long time, the management company stopped doing repairs for them, even though they were requesting repairs. Right. And, you know, subtly forced them them out. out. And then the people that have stayed, like in my line, I have a one-bedroom with a dining room it's a fairly big apartment for brooklyn um three floors down a family of they have four kids so it's a family of six live in the same apartment right yeah the size of mine you know and that's not uncommon right it's just not uncommon right so yes what year did you move to new york 
Where did you come from? I thought, no, where, <laughs> where did I come from? That was a really, we could go on and on. Um, really interesting conversation at Christmas. How to do this story. You recording all this? Yeah. Um, so uh, I had dinner, or we had dinner with my mother's cousin. She, my mother's cousin, is the last person in that generation. Okay. Generation alive. She's eighty-four. Growing up, I didn't know about her because my, if you can follow this, my mother's father was a, a career military man. Okay. So in World War II, um, engineer colonel in the army and his brother was when growing up i was told a communist right so career officer in the army communist so they didn't get along sure so the, the communist whose name i can't remember is so bad i can't remember his your name. father's brother my no my mother's father's brother mother's father's brother right, right. Uh, god i can't remember his name is my mother's cousin's dad right where i just had got you right? yeah and so Mary, my mother's cousin's like, he wasn't a communist, but probably le pretty left, right? And it made sense that those two would not get along. So wait, this would be World War I era? World War II. World War II, okay. Um, so I didn't know about Mary growing up. That family was sort of like, yeah. you know, we didn't talk to them, which is just so silly uh, considering my politics. But so around the time my mother was getting ill and dying, Mary kind of showed up in our lives and is this lovely person. So... Christmas and other holidays, I now hang out with her, and she's just lovely. You yeah. Know? But it was this whole side of the family we didn't know because, you know. Because of this bullshit. They, they were communists. But you end up learning a lot about your family. When... Right, of course. Of course. But again, it's interesting because my mother and then my politics, like, I, I would have loved to have met him. I probably would have had more in common. Mary's father. Right, right. More in common with him than I did with my grandfather, who was like this stoic, you know. Sure, but also certainly someone who had left-leaning attitudes during that specific Time. point in time it would have been really interesting to know right i just i've been reading all these books on uh and watching a lot of movies specifically about the pacific war huh. mm -hmm. and there's a part of me and i hope i'm not shooting myself in the foot by saying this semi-publicly is that like i i can understand looking through the lens of of american soldiers at that time it's easy for me to see how American minds were twisted into thinking of Japanese people as Japs, mm -hmm. to, as looking at them as this very abstract villain. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying no, I, I, fine, I identify I, or no, support racist thinking. Yeah. What I'm saying is, I get it. I get it. You, we can talk about. They this did a very time. successful job of of dehumanizing these people sure to the point that they were, you know, and Japanese people, you know, Japan as 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 a military and as a nation did some really reprehensible Pretty things during things, the war. Right. Um, so it'd be cur I'd be curious to hear the thoughts of, of someone speaking publicly at that time uh, against the war, specifically about that arm of the war. Well, it's so interesting. So when I went to college, I think it was freshman year. So I had a class around Japanese film and literature. And I think it was in this class. I can't remember. So my assignment was to look at... Um, at least how I remember it, like uh, the five years preceding World War II and looking at what was happening in, in the Pacific, if you will. And one of the things I came away with, again, the Japanese did some really reprehensible things, but what seemed to be driving the conflict is Japan was becoming a stronger economic force that the U.S. was going to have to compete against. Mm -hmm. And so the, 
we wanted to crush that. Mm -hmm. To your point, so we better demonize these people so they look evil because they're competition that we want to get rid of, mm -hmm. right? And that's not how I was taught history. I was taught they were just evil and they attacked us at, at Pearl Harbor. When they were actually leading up to Pearl Harbor, there were a lot of provocations on our part mm -hmm. that made them very angry. Mm -hmm. But you don't learn that, mm -mm. right? Yeah, so again, to your point, like, it would have been great to have talked to my, uh, what would he have been? He would have, your my granduncle? Grand, I don't know what he would have been called. Yeah, great, I don't know. Great uncle. Something. Great uncle, yeah, something that sounds right. Something, yeah. I've, I've no concept what it's like to have family that like i know my brother i know my sister mm -hmm. <laughs> like it doesn't go too much far really you don't know I, mean, I, I know where some of my cousins live you know we don't really talk or anything like that mm -hmm. you know i don't know where anyone came from or what they did is that true you don't you so you don't know your parents no, I know my, yeah i mean i i know who they are from for the most part i don't really like them mm -hmm. so i don't engage with them got it. got it um you know especially now now i feel like we have to be very careful like who we give energy to because on both sides of my family there's a lot of people who support this idiot. Wow, seriously? Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I can't, or at least they did, you know, last November. I don't know where they are now, but I can't, because it's not a matter of mm -hmm. left and right. It's really a matter of decency and cruelty. Well, again, sort of, it seems like left and right have sort of been erased now. I mean, I, uh, there was a headline this morning, and um, I didn't read the article, just how the Democrats think that they're going to win all these elections next year. And the, the headline was like, oh, that's a cautionary tale. You know, that they, <laughs> you know that they're so arrogant that they think, oh, you know, people now don't like Trump and what's going on. But I don't think it's that simple. No, I, I mean, the pulse is much harder to put your finger on I, than ever before. Really complex. Or some a co-worker, her partner, and most of her family are Republican also. Um, how did she tell this story? It was very interesting. Um, like they were all angry about the tax changes, but didn't, blamed it on government, didn't identify it as a Republican or a Trump issue. Mm -hmm. Still still felt fine report supporting trump and other republicans it was government that did that right what how do you even look at things i don't i don't understand. it's like to simplify things they utterly confuse them right like i just hate government but oh these people are i don't understand it this is wacko analysis it's really sad <laughs> I, I i don't i just I, I i have to feel like and i i do remember you know i remember when i was uh probably 14 or 15 was when I began to really kind of think like I, I knew that I had responsibility to take an interest in politics. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a house with liberals. You know, I was all, you know, I just understood things from a liberal perspective. Exactly. But I remember, you know, around the time, you know, leading up to um, the second election of George, uh, George Clinton. <laughs> of, <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a very different world. <laughs> that would have been a very, dude, I met Monica Lewinsky the other day. You did not. I did. Why? Wait, wait. I'll, we'll go back to that. But um, how? Why? <laughs> but uh, you know, and and I, I remember age fourteen, fifteen, watching debates between people like Bill Clinton and Bob Dole, and and hearing much more nuance than you hear oh, now. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's frightening. See, but the thing is, too, social work school really taught me this. You know, sit. I mean, how to do this. Really, since FDR, it's been it. 
it's just getting more conservative and more conservative. And Bill Clinton was really very conservative. Yeah. But, oh, you know, even Obama, and I really did not like a lot of Obama's um, policies. But come on, you hear him talking, it's just so sophisticated. And but it's, it's leadership. I mean, at the very, like, I, I swear to God, you watch someone like Mitt Romney now, and as horrifying as it is to think, or to think back to 2012, how horrifying the prospect may have seemed. He seems articulate and honest. He has true leadership skills. And by leadership, I just mean like, hey, something really bad is happening right now. Let me do my best to reassure you that there's an answer to this and that answer involves looking out for everybody. But so we need to get to music cuz we could go on and on about right. this. But what do people see in Trump then? He's not a leader. But so but he got elected. Uh, right. However he got elected, people see something in him. Have you ever been in a leadership role as, as a manager or a band leader? Sure. I mean, sure. You, you recognize that your responsibilities change and your your demeanor needs to change. And if you have, you know, let's say you're on the road and you got three guys in the band looking right. at you, you can't be the person who lose your shit. Right. You, you have to, to be the person to say, right. hey guys, I, just give me 45 minutes. I swear we'll get this hotel right. thing worked out. Or, or even, um, I, uh, I recently got a promotion. Um and was up for another promotion and a colleague got that job instead of I did instead of me which actually is, was a relief and uh, there'll be some challenges with her but interesting she's been challenging me on language lately about showing up as a manager and it's been really good like she said you know you keep using the word overwhelmed i want you to stop using that right. word and i was like and i was like wow i didn't even think how often i use that word and then how do the people i'm managing think of me if i keep saying i'm overwhelmed right mm -hmm. you know but again yeah i don't understand well i mean or very simple like i remember someone i worked with who worked over me even though and i was working over other people she very she saw us two i started working at the place on my second email she came out and said look you're using the word i a lot you got to say we right you know exactly. and and it's like oh yeah that makes perfect sense you know or another thing i've you know, God, I've been a manager, what, for 10 years now? But I don't know. You know, I need to learn to delegate, too. I'm just like, I'm awful at delegating because I'll just take on all the responsibilities. And then things don't get done because I have too many responsibilities. Right. Um, but I'll flip it this way. So, um, you know, I started Collapsible Shoulder, I don't know, how long ago? So how long has Kevin been sick? I think it's almost four years now. That's the band with Kato. Kato Adeki, Brian Chase, and... And Kevin Bud Jones. Kevin Bud Jones. So... Back with No Safety with Xena. But No Safety was you and Xena and... And a, a cast of characters that changed, but by the end of it, it was um, a guy named Tim, Tim Spelios on drums and Rupal on bass and a guy named Doug Seidel on guitar. Wait, wait, let's go back, though. So you moved to New York in what year? Uh, you asked me where I was yeah. from. So um, uh, my parents split up when I was teeny. Um, my father moved in here in 1966. My mother stayed in New Jersey. I lived with my mother but came in here a lot. Into Manhattan. Yeah. So, but so went to Bard College where I met Zena and other people. It's a longer story, too. We can get back to that. Um, and each summer I came down here and I was a bicycle messenger. So... Starting in, uh, it would have been the summer of 1979, I was living down here, but then going back to school. Riding bikes around Lower Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, it was a great way to get to know New York City. You know, I came and visited my father all those years, but then once, I, I remember my first day on the job as a bicycle messenger, um, I went downtown, you know, went down on Broadway, and 
you know, it's wacky thinking. I was like, there's no roads that go uptown. I guess I have to ride my bicycle up Broadway. <laughs> you know, it was just crazy. So it was an incredible way to learn New York City because on any given day, I was all over Manhattan. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I didn't, wasn't over um, Brooklyn and Queens, but it was just such a great way to learn the city. Riding a bike around Manhattan is such a Buddhist exercise because you get to this place where you're just doing it and you're aware of car doors opening, you're aware of right. all the stuff happening and it's like, being present it's like playing music well that's why i uh that's why i can't listen to music when i'm riding my bicycle well it's really bad idea right i i for all those reasons (laughs) i i need to be aware of all the things around me um though i you know i tend to not ride in manhattan anymore because as a kid i didn't care you know and it's just it's a little too much for me so i tend to be like on bike lanes and it's a little weird now right 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 so you were riding as a bike messenger around lower manhattan all the time for t- again, sort of those four years in college or three summers, and then the four years after that. Um, moved to Ludlow Street, which was very different at that time. Ludlow between what and what? Ludlow between um, Houston and Stanton. Stanton. And, you know, at that time, it was really pushing junkies out of the way on the door around five o'clock so they would line up and, you know. To get their stuff. Right. And, you know, uh, my apartment, which was probably um, a little wider than this. and Than this room that we're in. Yes. And three or four sizes longer, but very tiny. Um, that was $250 a month. Well, tenement apartment. Right. You know, it was, and there were rats. So it was pretty awful. Um. I, and that building still exists amidst all those high rises there. So I'm wondering how much something like that. That's goes like for. like near the old Max Fish or yeah, Pink it's across Pong. the street yeah. from that. Okay, right. Um, so I moved into New York. Um, but the story I told you when I came in the door, the first summer I got here, um, when I didn't have an apartment, I landed in the building where Zorn and Elliot were living, and a woman named Polly Bradfield, mm-hmm. Anthony Coleman. Um, weren't Wayne and Robin there too? Uh, they had left. Um, they had moved elsewhere uh-huh. in New York City. And the woman's apartment who I was in, uh, who I sublet, was a woman named Leslie Dullaba, a great trumpet, trumpet player, player right, who's in Seattle now. And so it was amazing because I... Mm, so you, wait, you were in that building on 7th Street in 79? No, in 1982, the summer of 82. Okay. And, until I found my place in... Um, on Ludlow Street. That's a storied building. Yeah. It's incredible. Generationally. Right? Yes. Um, but so, you know, in college, um, uh, my awareness of, of improvised music or stuff that was going on in New York wasn't so great. Though my freshman year, a friend of mine who lived in Brooklyn had this incredible record collection. And all of a sudden, it was all this music, um, uh, for lack of a better term, all this progressive rock music from... Um, Europe and like Evan Parker and all this other stuff I had never heard before. So he really turned me on to all these things, but I wasn't aware of what was going on in New York City. Um, Fred Frith and Chris Cutler came in and did an improvised show, uh, I think was my freshman year and that was incredible. It mm-hmm. changed, you know, up until then. Where was that, on 23rd Street? No, they came up to Bard and played. Okay. Um, and up until that point, I'd really just been playing, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of rock guitar. Um, where, were you, where were you coming from, from the rock guitar, from the blues? No, um, you know, uh, I learned how to play. My brother gave me, um, my bro- we talked about this recently, my brother had a guitar 
you know, I remember for, it seems like months I played E minor and A minor over and over again. That's all you need. (laughs) It's fine. It was electric guitar. And then he gave me a book of Dylan songs. So I learned those. And then my memory, it's like learning those songs and learning a lot of band songs. Um, And then uh, was in a band in high school and we played Allman Brothers covers. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Um, so when I got to Bard, it was sort of that, though I had started listening to um, King Crimson and Genesis and other things. But then this friend of mine who had this incredible record collection just turned me on to all this stuff. And he had a lot of um, uh, music from some folk musics from around the world. Not so much his collection. Um, it seems like a later thing to me. Um, and so when Fred and Chris came and, you know, I had known Henry Cow, but I wasn't expecting like uh, two hours of improvisation. It was they played for two hours. It was just like, what's this? This is incredible. And Fred was doing guitar preparations, yeah, all and, of that stuff. Yeah. And a friend of mine at the time, um, his name's Doug Henderson. He lives in Berlin now. He does, yeah, great engineer. Yeah, and he also what he does now is more sound installations. So he and I. Um, I think concurrently, but we had started detuning guitars and kind of throwing things at guitars. And Mm -hmm. um, when Chris and Fred came, it really solidified that for us. It's like, oh, there's this whole other realm where we can... um, I really started thinking of guitar... It really changed my vision. Um, we were also smoking a lot of hash oil at the time. That's a good place for that. <laughs> right. <Bard> is- <laughs> right. Um, thinking of guitar as kind of a source to make sound instead of uh, play songs. Right. Like, like what, what kind of sounds can you get out of this thing with strings? Again, to see Fred have... I don't even know if he had any guitars with him. It was all like, you know, prepared stuff on tables. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, wood and strings. You can do all these things. And there's electricity, so what can you do? Mm-hmm. Um, but so we were improvising at Bard, but again, not knowing the community here. So when I landed at Leslie Dullaba's apartment and landing in Zorn's building, it was incredible to me. Did you... What you just heard them practicing down the hall? And yeah, say, and I knocked on doors, and yeah. But Leslie also had told me that people were there, and also she was running the New York chapter of something called Improvisers Network, uh-huh. which was started by Davy Williams and Ladonna Smith. You they know? live in Birmingham. Now. Yes, right. So they had started this organization, Improvisers Network, and um, wanted to make it a national organization. And so Leslie was the New York chapter of Improvisers Network, you know, and it was a file folder, a box, right? You know, it had like people's addresses. I can't remember what it had in it. Maybe a couple of newsletters. Uh-huh. And Leslie's like, "I'm done with this. Do you want to do this?" And I was like, "Sure." Why not? So here was this file folder of people's addresses, improvisers all over the country. Uh huh. And it was like, this is where I landed just by a happenstance of like... This building on... Right. Yeah. You know, as a sublet. And so what I started doing... Again, I don't even remember meeting John for the first time. Because he was working at um, Soho Music Gallery at that time. It was a great record store. Uh Uh-huh. So maybe I'd met him in the building and then met him at the record store. I can't remember how we met at all. Um, so I decided to take over the New York chapter of Improvisers Network. Um, so through that, I met Davey and LaDonna and, and Eugene Chadborn and a bunch of other people. Um, again, this is pre-internet. And so what I decided to do, first I got a bunch of people together. I started meeting musicians and we sort of uh, formed a loose collective. Who were those people? Uh, that's a good question. I'm gonna have to think about that. It's one of those things. I gotta say, like I, I, 
you know, John's a very close friend, and Anthony's a friend, yeah. and, and that this 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 particular strain of New York music history fascinates me to no end. And I've talked to a lot of people, and I go to you know you go to Roulette or you go to Jim Staley's apartment, and you see the flyers and the posters for past seasons from you know 20 30 yeah, yeah, 35 yeah. years ago you see the names you know you see Zorn you see Ikoe you know you see these people then you see some of these names and you're like I don't know who that is yeah, you where'd know? that person what, go whatever happened to right, that guy exactly. you know no I it's interesting and when I was at roulette recently I was doing the same thing yeah who did I do it with there was a guy named Alan I have to think a bit yeah um so what I decided to do or we decided to do was to do I remember it I guess it was a monthly newsletter and what it would do would be just basically a bulletin of concerts that weren't listed in the Village Voice. Because you guys couldn't get listed. Right. Because there was, And maybe some were listed in the Village Voice, but there were a lot of different places where people were playing. Where and, were people playing that you remember? Mm, that's harder to remember. I mean, Studio grunt. Henry is like the one that everyone right, remembers. Right, but then, well, then Zorn had a place in the basement called The Saint. The basement of that building. Yes. Right. Um, there was a club called ABC. There was a place called Chandelier. Chandelier. But, but there were a ton of other places. There just right. were a lot of other places. And so I did that newsletter, and what we would do is we'd contact all these musicians, and let the, and they would contact us on a monthly basis, and we'd have this flyer that we would take to record stores and other places again pre-internet so it was this incredible resource and so it functioned in two ways it was a resource but it was also a way to meet people you know and so that was incredible i just met tons of musicians and then um who knows what year this was 1984 because mm -hmm. so i was still on ludlow street um there's a building two buildings down from la mama it's still there. On 4th Street. Yes, it's Old Yiddish Theater, and it has a um, spiral staircase on the outside. Uh -huh, I know that building. Right. So at that point, it was a wreck. Um, a theater company named the Alchemical Theater were doing productions on one of the floors. And myself and, again, other people that I don't remember. It's so bad. Um, I'm going to have to think about that. Went there, and I said, would it... Um, you know, Improvisers Network wants to do a concert series. Could we do that? And my memory is it went on for a couple months. Um, we ha we did Zorn's Track and Field there, mm -hmm. had a band called Multiple Snaps It, which was David Moss, George Cartwright, and Michael Lytle. Mm -hmm. um, I see Michael walking around all the time. I don't see Michael at all. Um, and Ardo came and played. I mean, Elliot played. We had a bunch of people. Um, so that concert series and Fred played with some people and what i did too is i tried to have uh, my peers play with them too so it was generational it was people that were already here but mm -hmm. people had just come in um so we did that and, and what was your idea for your own playing at the time for what you wanted to achieve musically well so interesting you know i think leaving i remember a conversation my senior year at bard um so i at bard i came in uh, i was writing poetry in high school so i came in to bard on a poetry scholarship which is shocking that they would give money <laughs> for someone writing poetry. poetry um and um back to our earlier conversation i became a history major because i just became interested in politics and history and uh studied Russian history, but the notion was if you were a history major, you'd have to do this huge senior project like thesis. And I had been playing music the whole time, so I changed to a music major because at Bard, all I had to do for a senior project was to play music all year and I could graduate. Who was the instructor? Um, 
a guy named Ailey Arden. Okay. Yeah. So that was incredible. That I, instead of doing a history senior project, all I had to do was play music all right. year, which sounds was good. Easy. You know that was that was difficult. Um, so what was I thinking music wise? I think uh, oh, so the conversation I had senior year, I, I, there was this girl I used to party with freshman year, and by senior year, all of a sudden she became like a straight A student and wasn't partying anymore. <laughs> you know? And I remember it was a couple months before we graduated, we talked about what we were going to do, and she said, "Well, what are you going to do?" And I said, "I'm going to be a musician." And she's like, "Really, Chris?" Really? You're that gonna, response was based on the music she'd heard you play? Well, also that like I was going to make money as a musician. Right. right. You know, she and like she was like corporate. And, yeah. Right. Um, so I made the practical decision when I got out of school because of many different things that happened that senior year um, and also landing in the building on 7th Street. I was just going to play improvised music. I was just really interested in doing that was your get rich quick scheme yeah you know <laughs> i didn't start writing songs again until i felt like i was 30 sure maybe yeah, yeah yeah because there were so many people to play with and it was just such a way to inform and change my playing that wasn't you know wasn't playing rock guitar i wasn't that interested well in there's that. something about being in your 20s i remember there was a period of time when i was um, maybe 25 or so I had a group of people we were improvising a lot we would get together every Thursday night at my friend's apartment and just play for hours and hours and talk about ideas and everything and uh, this, this guy's a bass player and I remember one night he put on two people we were arguing about you know composition and improvisation as 20 year olds you know tend Ten, to do right? and uh, he put on two pieces he goes I'm gonna put on two pieces of music side by side I want you to tell me which one is like kicks more ass order he played these two pieces of music and it was Barry Guy playing a solo bass improvisation and then a piece that Fernie Howe had written for, for solo bass. And I was like, the Barry Guy piece. Like, and for me, I was like, oh, yeah. Like, right. If you're playing with top-shelf improvisers, like, it's going to win every right. time. See me, well, so it's interesting because there's been many. <laughs> the journey has been very complicated along the way. Because I was thinking about what I would talk about and what questions you would ask. And, um, Yeah, I don't know. If you would have talked, uh, time is relative, but I don't know. Sit, we'll make this up. If you would have talked to me about three years ago, I might have said, you know, I really just want to be in several bands and write music and do that. Uh huh. I would say in the last two years, the majority of music, that I'd say throughout my career, the majority of music that I've played has been improvised. But uh -huh. the last two years, it seems like I've even reinvested in it more. And In the improvising. Right. And is what I do, you know. Right. But I think for a while, whatever that two year ago mark, I was like, oh, I don't really want to do that anymore. I think more stuff can be achieved by writing, and mm -hmm. that's what I want to do. But uh, sort of to your point, um, improvising wins out a lot when of the it's time. great. When it's great. When it's not great, it can it's, be pretty it's, abysmal. It's, it's, right. But I think you and I, um, surely. You and I run with a bunch of people that are pretty incredible musicians. Right. So I would say 95% of the time, the people that I'm getting together with and improvising, the music's pretty incredible. It's a profound right. experience. Right. And something you talked about a minute ago, sort of like being in the moment. I'm sure you've pondered this too. Like, uh, how or what am I thinking when I'm playing? It's just... Uh, it's the worst sometimes. Well... Yeah, but what am I thinking while I'm playing? Um, you know, uh, 
I still can really get in my own way. You know, it's so silly sometimes. If somebody's in the audience that I feel like hasn't heard me play in a long time, I can sometimes focus on them, which is just so goofy. Uh-huh. Um, but improvising, like, what am I thinking about? I mean, there's so many thoughts going on in your head, right? Um, within the last year and a half, um, and I relate this to... Um, been in this one relationship for almost a year and a half now um daily meditation practice yeah uh it's it's been incredible it's really just changed um how i think about things so you know uh, we did this 40 minute meditation this morning and so again the classic thing is like how do you come back to your breath right you know because your brain just goes all over these places Yeah, yeah, yeah how do I bring that to playing? Like uh, if my brain's going all over the place while I'm playing, which it tends to do, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or can I just then focus on my playing? But focusing on playing, what's that mean? You know, because I'm also listening. Uh-huh. I'm also listening to the room. I'm also maybe thinking about the breakfast I had, but I'm also thinking about the composition we're making together and what do I want to achieve? And then how am I responding to the people I'm playing with? I mean, there's just so much going on, right? Yeah. It's it's complex. Mm-hmm. Much less than if you're doing a composition, then you're kind of worried about, possibly worried, oh, am I paying attention to the changes? What am I going to do? What's the structure of this? How am I going to play? And then if you think... If I think that I'm thinking all those things, it's miraculous that I'm playing anything while I'm thinking all those things, right? Right. I mean, hopefully you're responding with something authentic enough that, you know, people hear it and they go, wow, that guy really meant something when he played that. Right. But also, uh, sure, you know, I'm thinking theoretical things like, oh, uh, it's in this key and that. But I think less and less as I get older, I... Yeah, I don't don't play... um, I tend, you know... I don't read music. Um, I don't play. tend to play music that's written compositionally very complex. Again, I think that's also why I've just invested so much in improving, impro- yeah. improvising lately because it's just, it's. I find the music I do, maybe, the music that I do improvising is more complex than the music that uh, is written that I play. Sure. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Absolutely. What were the first group? What was the first group you put together in New York? Well, so it's interesting you telling your story. So when I lived on Ludlow Street, I seem to remember we used to have gatherings in a very small apartment, sometimes ten people improvising. You know, Jesus Christ. neighbors never complained. Never because they were selling dope or well, shooting. Well, up. right, but it was also <laughs> just this noise. Right, as soon as we started a band. And we started being repetitive and people heard things. People started knocking. Really? Right. So that was interesting to me that they could disregard this improvised music. But if they started hearing compositions over and over and over again. Then they're aware that someone is doing something that's not to their liking. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, So there was a... So that year, you know, so I, I, I mythalize. I tell myths too. So I didn't improvise forever. A band with George Cartwright and Xena and a guy named Fred Challoner, a bass player who lives in Portland. Wait, was that uh, uh, was that Curlew? No. I wonder if George was doing Curlew at that time. I bet he was. So it was a, a sort of more of a chamber group. Um, and it was compositions mostly by Xena and Fred. Fred had come from Portland. He... Um, from Seattle, uh-huh. he had been working with his guitarist Miles Boyson, who now lives in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Great uh, recording engineer, great guitar player. Um, 
And so Fred and Zena's compositions were pretty complicated. I think probably the most complicated music I had played up until that point. Um, so uh, that band lasted, I don't know, for like a year. Um, and then I went to Europe. Um, how did that all happen? You went on tour. Um, uh, somehow uh, during that time... You know, because of Improvisers Network and Fred, Fred had lived on Ludlow Street, um, we occasionally would have Improvisers Network meetings in his apartment. Um, and through Fred, I guess I uh, must have been through Fred, I met Tim Hodgkinson. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he came here, and for whatever reason, we did a couple gigs together. So Tim had invited me to come over to England and possibly do a project together. Me being, again, in my early 20s, I crazy. I sold everything in my apartment and decided <laughs> to go to England. And when I got there, Tim was like, huh? Oh. And I was like. He didn't remember having the conversation. Well, he was like, you know, that was an idea, but, you know, I'm doing other things now. It wasn't like it was, you know, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like this. Again, it wasn't email like you could write every day. It was like right. he had said this idea, and I was like, wow, this is incredible. Tim Hodgkinson yeah. wants me to come do this project. Um, so you turned up in England, and he was like, "Sorry, kid." Right, kinda, yeah. Um, but I, uh, I was not so dumb. What had happened before I left? I had done a project called "Them," which is coming back in June of 2018. It was a spoken word dance and music performance, and it ended up being one of the first pieces around HIV um, uh, created at the time. That was at PS122. Correct, and so that was. The spring of 86, and PS122 um, gave us money to do it the fall of 1986. It was my first dance commission. So I went away that summer to England, but I knew that I was coming back side this dance commission. Um, and and Zena and I had been talking. The band with George and Fred fell apart, but she and I wanted to continue working together. So... I sold all my things, but I was coming back for the fall. And I came back and did music for them, but Zena and I did our first uh, concert as No Safety, and we just did it as a duo. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this great place, I wish, it was called Tin Pen Alley. It was off ta- Times Square. Um, it was a bar, and bands like The Ordinaires and some other bands played there. Um, Oh, the guitarist that was in Rollins' band played there. I can't remember. A bunch uh-huh. of people played there. Really great venue because it was uptown. It was out of the downtown scene. But right. It was doing a lot of stuff. Um, and so that was the first No Safety gig. And we figured we couldn't sustain it as a duo. Musically or? Yeah, we wanted, you know, we wanted a rhythm section. We didn't, I mean, we played to some cassette tapes that we made. and or, yeah, yeah. You know, we just wanted to be, you know, she played bass. And, you know, it was just we wanted to play the instruments we primarily were right. uh, playing. Um, so it was a lot of different people. We had a drummer named Katie O'Looney played drums. She lives in France now. Tony Mamoni, who was in hey. Parabu. He had just left Parubu. Yeah. Um, Tony's a great guy. Tony's an awesome guy. Um, Tony was really gung-ho. That, uh, that combination didn't work out, and we settled with, or ended up with, Ann Rupel, who had been in a band called V-Effect, which was Rick Brown and this other guy. Um, and Fred had produced them. So Ann became a, a, 
a permanent member. We then had a drummer, Pippin Barnett, who was in Curlew. Uh-huh. Um, he was the initial drummer, and then this guy, Doug Seidel, who I'd gone to college with. Um, so then No Safety was a band for like eight years. Um, That's a long time for an improvised unit. It wasn't improvised. We started making, writing compositions, okay. right? Um, yeah, wouldn't have, and but it was like a marriage, and so this gets back to the collapsible shoulder thing. So Zine and I formed that band, and sort of out of the model of how we understood Henry Cow, and it goes back to management and leadership. We thought it would be a collective. Mm-hmm. Well, mm, did we understand what a collective really meant? How did we make decisions? <laughs> it was pretty haphazard. Yeah. Um, and Zena and I kind of ceded leadership to each other and to the band at times and probably in ways that ultimately didn't allow the band or didn't help the band sustain itself. Right. Um, you know, we made some foolhardy decisions about touring and what we did and, um, you know, it, it just, it couldn't sustain itself. I mean, it's funny. I, uh, I tell this classic story, like, a month after we broke up, there was an article in the Arts and Leisure section in the New York Times saying we were the next big thing. <laughs> <laughs> They've always had their finger on the pulse. Right, right. It's like a great, sorry, we don't exist. Yeah. Um, but so doing Collapsible Shoulder, there's been many bands in between that. Um, Kevin kept saying to me, you know, it's really important that this band have a leader and, you know, someone who's making the decisions. And so I agreed with that. And the majority of compositions are my compositions. Mm -hmm. Though, as the band has grown, it has become much more a collective unit, though it's still, I would consider my band because there's a vision I have for the band and I still bring in the compositions even though the band members really contribute a lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you'd be a damn fool to not let people like Brian and Kato. I mean, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they're incredible, right. right? They're incredible musicians, so why would I not want that? Exactly. Their input. And also, Kevin, Kevin's story is tragic, actually. So I created the band wanting two guitar players, a bass player, and drummer. I just wanted something really traditional. I wanted it to be instrumental. I didn't want to sing, because I don't think of myself as a good singer. I just wanted to focus on my guitar playing. Um, we do one gig we have another gig Kevin was a DP at that point um, went out to do some film work in Portland, Oregon and fell and fractured his shoulder right Um, I mean not funny tragically he's still he has not had he's had one surgery but still needs corrective surgery is still battling with workman's comp and others to get money for that yeah so could not play guitar after that but all cobbled together mostly all these analog synths and Mm -hmm. other things. And now it's a table of electronic instruments and some samples and has created this whole other world that makes the band really extraordinary and not this traditional thing. Right. And his input is incredible. Yeah. You know, I just give him assignments. He comes back with all these great things. So again, why would I not want that input? I mean, I guess I could really script it more. Mm, But again, you know, I don't write things out. So I come from this place of improvising where input and composition coming from the players is just so important Mm -hmm. right and you know kato to a lesser extent but playing with brian i feel like every time we play it's very different Mm -hmm. he finds different things to do i mean maybe the feels of this of the composition stay the same, but not really, you know. And, right. And 
that makes the music really, really interesting. Right? Yeah. In some ways, I feel like we've mostly been playing the same set of music for two years. And because we've been doing that, it radically changes every time we play it because we can trust that there's this this core of music, but we can sort of play around it, mm -hmm. if you will. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, yeah. Did, um, uh, so you were, I, I, I didn't realize that you were around the scene that early. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I thought you came along like after the um, knitting factory had already gotten up and going. Yeah, no. Because yeah. so, yeah, we all thought the knitting factory was this great thing when it arrived. Um, in some ways, it How was. How long did that feeling last? <laughs> <laughs> Till Michael Dorf showed. I just heard a story about, it's okay, I don't really care that this is public. Um, yeah. You know, the city winery doesn't have backline. I believe that. I, I, I have no doubt about that. That's just crazy. That man has so many resources. Yeah. But, you know, he'll he'll auction off a bottle of wine before. Right. I almost feel like there are certain people who to do things that misguided, it's like almost like an essential part of the way they relate to the world. At the same time, yes. Michael just made some really wacky decisions at the same time. It became a place for many of us to perform. Right. He put on a lot of tours, um, put out a bunch of records. Uh, the money stuff was all very wonky. I mean, you know, I wasn't there. You know, I've heard several people's accounts. Seemingly, he would have people believe that he put this music on the map. Right, right. That's the problem. Right. right. But that's but this happens all the time. Um, I belong to this thing called Record Club. It's a simple thing to talk about. We get together every month and we play music for each other and we talk about stuff them. that you're into. Right. Um, it's a simple way to talk about it. And I went there two weeks ago, and I'm going to forget this guy's name. Um, Dan, the guy that hosts it, played some electronic music by the guy who came in and programmed all the synthesizers for um, Stevie Wonder's records, Inner Visions and Beyond That. Okay. Do you know that guy's name? No. And so Stevie doesn't talk about that guy. So again, sort of Michael Dorff taking responsibility for putting these things on the map. So here's Stevie Wonder, who those records are incredible, and Stevie's an incredible talent. But Sure. Has he ever really talked about that guy and promoted that guy who, right. you know, and as soon as you heard these electronic recordings, you were like, oh, yeah, right. that sounds like Stevie's records. I mean, the compositions aren't the same, but the sure. sounds are there. Yeah. You know, so I think that happens a lot in history, right? People take credit for stuff that they shouldn't take credit for. Sure. Well, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. That's that's not new. Because you know the scene was going on way before Michael arrived. Though again, he offered a venue. Well, it seems like that venue, and and this is something I think about when when I'm sort of having mostly internal conversations about what it's currently like to be a musician in New York. It seems like that venue literally and physically put a stage in the room Correct. like you know to play in a loft to play at a studio henry where it's like the stone you know currently where the chairs and the musicians are on the same place with each other when you have a stage and when you have a bar the act of presenting music takes on a whole other realm whole other realm whole other perspective and it's a realm and perspective that lends itself if the timing and everything is right to become something commercially viable yeah but you also have somebody coming in and saying we're going to make this you know i'm going to take you to europe I'm, there's these promises right? sure so yeah the stage is a great metaphor all of a sudden it just changes things you know but interesting the difference between say the knitting factory or tonic right you know tonic has a stage but tonic 
seemed much more, even though it wasn't, community run. Uh-huh. You know, I didn't feel like there was any pretense at Tonic. You were doing a gig at Tonic. Right. Maybe the Knitting Factory people thought, oh, you know, I can get something out of this if I play here. I mean, maybe people thought that at Tonic. Sure. But, you know, I think Michael also kind of sold it that way. Right. But, know? I mean, do you... I, I, I wonder about this. And when I bring this up with people, I try to do it... I, I don't mean this to sound insulting because it's something I, I wonder about for myself. Like... There was this period of time in the late 80s into the early 90s when this music that was happening, you know, it's it's a broad range of musics. It's jazz, it's yeah, rock, yeah. it's improvised music, you know, but all this kind of stuff that was happening around downtown became uh, profitable for a number of people through touring and, and records. Did people who were involved in that and who started going to Europe feel like, oh, cool, this is it, we've made it, we are Kinda, now earning yeah. a living without ever thinking like, oh, this is a bubble? potentially was yeah. it a bubble or are we just kind of um you know what i'm saying yes um can i take a break and look at this text message sure i mean we could talk while i'm taking this test message. um <laughs> but it's a good question to take a pause on <laughs> give, give me a little time to think about it how did we not think of it as a bubble bubble well, I mean, I'll just elaborate because I know musicians who are feeling frustrated right now because seemingly, you know, things aren't rolling like they once were. Yeah. And, and they seem to be internalizing it. But I just don't know that there's, there's an infrastructure, that there's a network to support in the way that it once had. Yeah, but so I'm going to come to the present and then go to... I mean, you know, the internet's just destroyed everything, right? You know, I... I truly love the internet that I can have access to everything all at once, but it's destroyed the music industry, right? I think because sure. uh, record companies aren't going to invest in people like us. They just aren't, you know? So at the time, you know, my history is wonky. You, you need to remember there are all these independent labels happening, right? Mm -hmm. And, seemingly right before it all changed, people really thought that it was viable to be able to make a living as a musician because you had records coming out mm -hmm. and people willing to put money into you. I think it was maybe, in hindsight, probably a little foolhardy that people were actually thinking that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, here's the gravy train. Um, I mean, because it would be interesting to talk to a bunch of people that did the Knitting Factory tours. I know we didn't make a whole lot of money on our tour. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of tours. I wonder if people did. And if they did, how much money were they really making? Right, right. You know, and the internet hits and, you know, I just think the industry has changed radically. Uh, I would say in the last 10 years, I mean, so my choice to do social work. I mean, so you asked me about, my trajectory i i was doing improvised music and then i have this band with xena and we think and the new york times says we're going to be a big thing uh, but we were all had day jobs we weren't mm -hmm. living off the music um and so i thought briefly oh i'm gonna have a music career and then it was like yeah i'm traveling all over i'm doing music i have no money mm -hmm. um a social work career it's a longer story but becomes available to me it's like this seems like a wise idea i'm getting older i need to have an income I want older meaning what mid-30s yeah early 40s uh -huh. know, late 30s early 40s i want an income i want health insurance maybe this is a good idea mm -hmm. leaving music a little bit but 
I need an income, mm-hmm. right? And then the majority of my peers that I see that didn't do that, most of them are teaching to actually make a living. Um, very few are making a living just touring and you know writing and making records and even less are making a living from their own creative ideas a lot of times i mean not that side men aren't creative but i'm just saying yes 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 right i mean if you look at someone like mark rebo but he'll talk about it too i mean you know he'll talk your ear off in a good way but um when did we have that conversation within the last year he said you know a decade ago i had tons of studio work yeah he said I don't have that work anymore. It's gone. Right. People aren't hiring him as much. I mean, he's older, so he's not as hip, maybe. But still, it's money. It's money. It's money. It's money. So there's someone that really made his living with his own music, but mostly as a side person, right? Yeah, but at the highest level. Right. I mean, you hire Rebo because you want Rebo to bring that magic. But even he's saying that that's not the same. And, you know, we know people like John, but John's a whole other. Right. It's a whole other realm, right? right. Like, uh, but there are still a bunch. I, I can name people, but th- it seems like uh, income is a lot less. But so you going back to your point, bemoaning that they really thought this was, was going to last forever. Who's, I mean, I, that was with a question mark because right. I, I don't know. Because again, even you know, again, because I, you know, my choice too is I don't tour a whole lot. I stay here because I have a job. You know, I feel like a folk musician in New York City, a folk improviser. It's just kind right. of what I. I don't travel that much. I do, but not. Um, but what I understand from a lot of people, the whole, the network in Europe is much smaller now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot less festivals to play. There's a lot less money there. Mm-hmm. You know, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, it was. You went there all the time. Yeah. People used to go to Japan all the time. How much is that happening? Not at all. People don't go there at all anymore. And for a while, that was like the hot spot to go. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know? So, yeah, money's just different. And there aren't gazillion uh, independent labels that are willing to support people. There just isn't. Because no one's buying music, right? But I don't know if this is interesting or not. It almost seems like... this. I'm going to make two quick points. One is you can't look at... You know, I saw the 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 news in the news the other day. They were showing the salaries of like the top Spotify CEOs, the top guys, huh. and it's just like you have to have serious blinders to not see how that income was hijacked. You know, like right. pirates, they took right. it. You know. But more importantly, it's like it seems as if there was a period of time where you know you're you're a creative musician and you can't get signed to a label because you know best case scenario you only sell ten twenty thousand records. Right. Right? right. You think to yourself, wait, how can you? You can sell 10, 20,000 records and make really good money if you do it differently. So these labels pop up and they start doing it. And now it seems to have like found its way back to that, which is, sure, you can make money from streaming your music on these services, but you have to have hundreds of thousands, if right. not millions of streams, right. which you're just not going to do without that, that major label and that, you know, that type of music that gets right to the point like that. Mm. So in a way, the current situation of of making money from recorded music is back to where it was, but with none of the perks of... Correct. (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, yes. I actually think... hmm, And this is where Mark Rebo and I will disagree. And I think he has some good arguments. But I think it's pretty awesome now that... uh, a bunch of people are making music and putting stuff on Bandcamp and whatever, SoundCloud, and you know, and you don't need a record label to do that. And a lot of people can have access to your music. 
that's pretty incredible. Before people waited for labels to do that before they did mm -hmm. it, or you know, they had a cassette thing, or but people were always waiting for labels. Now people are doing all the self-production and there's tons of great music around. It sucks because people aren't making their living from doing music, but there's a ton of music and people are being really creative with putting stuff online. I mean, I remember when Arlene's Grocery opened up mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it was the first time you weren't getting paid by the venue. You had to pass a hat around, you know. And Rebo and a bunch of us like picketed that place, and it was like, "This is really awful." And we would talk to musicians going in there, and they were like, "I don't care. I just want to play. I want to play." Yeah, you know, not but we weren't making tons of money before. You'd play CBs, and maybe you'd get a hundred bucks, maybe you'd get two hundred bucks, right? But you got something. It felt like something. And then all of a sudden, now I would say the majority of places I play now, people put a hat around right it's crazy it's what is expected so how does that what you know again to mark's argument then how how are the musicians valued really you know you're not getting compensation for this you, the venue the venue just offers you the venue they don't support right the whole social system of musicians the musicians are expected to come and play for free that's just kind of wacky it's yeah i, I want but how much of it have we brought on ourselves because musicians just want to play. Because I mean, I have friends. You know, I, sure. I did. I did one of these tours one time where I, I went on a rock tour. I was the opening act. Did thirty shows in a row, no days off, and I came home with a few hundred bucks. Right. You know. Right. And people do this kind of stuff with this idea of exposure. That's generally what it is. It's exposure, and you know, that's an old conversation. It's not that you know, but I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like we lost the plot somewhere along the way. Of of. Do you think it is that tension? Because in some ways now for me, I do want to play. So I don't really care. I've gotten to this point where... But that's I, a diff it's a different I want to play. There's the 20-something there's the who's like, I don't care. I want to play. I'll play five sets tonight all over the city in bars and wherever the fuck else. I don't care if I get, you know, versus, you know, you've seen the arc, you've done it, and now you just want to play for, you know, fulfillment. <laughs> right, because it's just I can't battle that anymore. Right, it's true. I think it's two different versions of it, but certainly... I, and this is like this is like my inner Trump. This is my inner Republican. There's part of me that feels like if things were more in balance, I do think the music could be better by people saying to themselves, like, I got to get the music to a certain point before I bring it to a venue, to a promoter, to an audience to present it. Well, that's an interesting point. Well, so, but I think, that, um, I think that's their best record. But anyway, um, that is their best record. No questions asked. Uh, weird band now th yeah. now this is a really weird it's kind of the band. only record of them actually like weird band to have a major label deal flaming lips it's well, just a weird band yeah but that can't the sing i mean but that's the thing is like when major labels were going as much as people and again this is my inner trump they, talking as, pe as much as people still major label though right but as much as people want to vilify major labels and, and corporations well people like ornette coleman right i know I you know, know flaming lips you know not that those two are on the same level but right. these people slipped through because people who were writing the checks were like, what? I don't know what any of this is. See, Let it slip through. See, to complicate your art argument, though, and I'm going to uh, see if I can get back to your other point, though. You know, late 90s, early 2000s, I knew a bunch of A&R people uh -huh. in major labels. They were getting paid tons to do fucking nothing. Right. They would go to shows for free. They'd go to all these festivals, and they'd sign nobody. So you had these... So we have this... 
because it's a more nuanced argument. I don't think labels were this panacea. They were a problem too. Yes. You had these people making a lot of money off artists and the artists weren't getting the money either. And it wasn't dribbling down to taking chances on artists either. You know, so uh, yeah, we can all go, wow, we wish the labels were back, but they were a problem too. Mm-hmm. But I do, something I was thinking about today, because I've been self-releasing records for since fucking 2012 now. And I, it just occurred to me today, because I'm really slow, they're like, no label's gonna call me up and say, hey, I want you to do a record for our label. Which there was a time, and there still, it still does happen, you know, but a label, an underground label with a, a defined aesthetic, you know, they contact an artist and they say, hey, do something for the label. It's like, it's, it's a challenge in a way. You think, okay, I would love to do something right. for that label. And right. you're thinking, okay, I'm gonna do a record for, for AD, I'm going to do a record for Tzadik, I'm going to do a record for, you know, whatever fucking label, and that is an interesting artistic challenge. And I wish that was something that was still happening. And right. Well, because it's true. Anytime that's happened for me, it's sort of like, oh, I have to rise to the occasion here. Yes. Right. Um, so amidst that, though, I think living in New York is really, I'm sure it's like this other places, but I feel like trying to get people together for rehearsals. Oh, it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. But I don't have a whole lot of, I, I'm not compensating my musicians either too. So again, that structure is sort of gone. For me as musician, it's almost become a hobby. I lose money. The only way that I can compensate my musicians is if it's coming out of my own pocket, mm-hmm. right? So maybe people are showing up a little less interested because they're not compensated. I don't know. But I think it's, I think it also feeds, um, in New York City anyway, my desire to do improvised music, it's easier to get together and I know a bunch of great players and mostly can trust that doing a show with the people that I'm going to pick is probably going to be something pretty good. Meaning you can get arrive at the bandstand and un, and, and and expect that you guys are going to perform at a high level. Right, because and, we've been doing it for right. a long time. We're all committed to making some great music, but yeah, to your point, I, I, I think sometimes uh, the quality is less interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, also, like, uh, how many shows have I done with two or three people there? Like, how's that inform how I show up there? Like, I'm, wow, I was expecting more, and there's three people here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love playing, but... So it can be demoralizing. Right, exactly. Like, I've been doing this for however many years, and there's right. three people here. Right. Uh, but you know, New York City's crazy. There's good music everywhere all the time. So ha- you know, to get right. an audience there. But you have places like Issue Project where there's seemingly always an audience, or Roulette where there's almost always an audience. Maybe less so at Roulette, but Issue Projects yeah. and National Sawdust they seem to have this thing. Well, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. Conversa- I, I I I should not say anything about Issue Project. Really. Okay, fine, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think there are some venues that have sort of a built-in cachet, sure. if you will. But I, I don't know that some of those venues, that music, is the actual music is their primary concern. That's probably true. I think the more you make music the primary concern, the less likely the show's going to sell. Right, but, uh, and again, to roulette then, you talk about really, because music is primary, and the audience is... Very greatly, you know. Jim has done an amazing thing. Jim is one of the undisputed saints of improvised music. We all thought 
when he moved to Brooklyn that he would not that venue would not survive. Yeah. He's done incredible it's like stuff. Five, six years now. Right. Yeah. He's made it part of the community. He does all this different work in order to sustain people like us to have concerts there. You know, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. He takes huge risks. Yeah. And it really is people like us. I have to, you know, I, I, Roulette over the years has been very generous and supportive towards me. Yes. And I've asked myself, why? Like, why? Like, you know, they, there's so many, you know, and it's genuinely because I think Jim, I can't speak for him. It's my suspicion. It's my theory that he looks at people who, <sighs> I think it's a combination of have unusual <laughs> ideas um, and, and, and have rolled up their sleeves and been working in the streets to 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 help actualize their ideas. Yeah, I, I, he truly supports people. Um, oh, you were saying something that, um, yeah, I think it. I yeah, I think he he really takes. Um, I mean, it, it different and similar to John, but I think you know Jim really believes in this mission of supporting. Um, Music that's extraordinary, music he likes, but mm -hmm. people that have been committed to make, making this type of music, this type of music. But there's a huge diversity of the music that is presented at Roulette. Yeah. You know, he yeah. really support in some respect, it's too global, but supports creative process, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've, I, I'll say this. When I'm, you know, looking at my last few moments and I'm flashing through everything, I, I will tell you right now, the support that Roulette has given me has resulted in major breakthroughs in my life yeah 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 personal creative you know yeah. tangible output the whole thing yeah and i feel like if i present a project to him and again there there's sort of what we're talking about like i feel like jim's gonna take a risk with me no matter what but i also feel like if i'm gonna present something to him i want to present something and sort of show up like what you're talking mm -hmm. about you know i want to step up and make it something special for that space yeah you're not gonna drop a sack of shit on the right. stage i'm just not you know oh jim i want to do a solo improv gig for yeah you know it's I, which could be fine sure i thought it through but i yeah i want it to be something special if i'm going to be in that venue yeah you know but because of who he is i respect that right yeah. I, I you know he's respecting me but i want to respect his venue and his commitment. It just irritates me that we can't have some version of that everywhere. I threw a temper tantrum at a venue um, four or five weeks ago. I showed up to play, and there was garbage on the floor of the stage, right. and there was broken chairs, and the bum that was working in this space like just couldn't give a fuck. And there was on the stage a half bottle of Gatorade, and I kicked it across the the venue until it you know hit a wall. And it's just like. You don't have to have the roulette budgets. You don't have to have the name Zorn to create an environment where music is respected. Which So you spend 15 minutes. You, you sweep up the place. You ask the musicians how you're doing. You offer them a glass of water. Already you've created a situation where music can thrive. So after that theater on West on 4th Street, Alchemical Theater, they moved to a basement on 9th Street. Um, and we followed them. And so what I did is with this woman, Cindy Cole, who was a banjo player, we started a weekly series there. It um, Letters fell off the sign, so it became a mica bunker instead of alchemical. Mm -hmm. And that series, until quite recently, was still going. So we started that in 1986, and it was a Sunday night series that Blaze... Savula. 
was doing over, at ABC No Real. Right, same series. So that series lasted from 1986 to quite recently. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And it was about what you were talking about. It was respectful. We made the space for the musicians. You know, it, it was funky, but we cleaned up the space when we got there. You made it a place people wanted to play, mm -hmm. right? And yeah, I feel like there's there's a bunch of places that I play in Bushwick now that I some I really like and some are just like I can't believe I'm playing here. Yeah, you know. But there's a place again. It's probably good not to name places. Um, so Stuart and I did two gigs to promote this record. Um, and the second gig, it was crazy. They were asking me for identification to get in the front door, and I was like, I'm as if you're underage, potentially. Right. Right. I'm, Right. <laughs> you know, I'm playing here tonight. No, you need identification. You know, and I didn't have identification. It was just like, I, and this so disrespectful to a musician that was showing Anybody, up. Anybody, really. Right. It was yeah. just really awful. Now, much less, then we got back in the performance space. It was lovely. But the people at the front end. I know what you're talking about. Just what you've described, I already know what you're talking about. It was awful. Yeah. I was like, really? I'm playing here? But then once I got in the room, the people that had organized the show did a really good job of taking over the space and making it mm -hmm. a, a valuable gig. But then I talked to someone, I don't know, this week, and they said, oh, I played there. It was really awful. Sort of almost like your experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like I show up at a lot of venues that are like that. Yeah. And I'm like, Really? This is where I'm playing. They can't all be related. <laughs> right. Yeah. They can't be. Yeah. I mean, you know, and so there's another discussion too about, and I'm sure I'm not the first person bringing this up, like, you know, is this by the stone moving to the new school, is that a bad thing? Uh-huh. I don't think well, it's I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I mean, some people feel like now John is only gonna pick a certain bunch of people to play at the new school. So maybe he does that. But I trust John enough that I don't think it will be that. No. And I also think it's awesome for the students. I think it's an incredible thing right. to have whatever this type of music, the range of music that John is interested in curating for students to hear. It's and unbelievable. See. It's incredible. It has literally put the new school at the very front right. of, I, I, of creative academia. I think it's awesome. And it's not – I don't think it's changing – what the stone was. I mean, the stone on the corner of 2nd Street and Avenue C, that's a great legacy. How many years was it there? 15? What? 13? That's yeah. a fucking long time. Yeah. And the amount of great music that was made there? It's insane to think right. about. It's incredible to think about. And so that it's moving to the new school? Awesome. Yeah. I have no problem with that. Some people are like, oh, it's going to change it. Well, it'll change it. But, it'll change it, but potentially but, for the better. But also access. Young kids being able to hear this music? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Yeah. I, I, I haven't been to the new space. I'm looking forward either. to it. Um, yeah, I haven't either. I haven't either. Um, so back to your, uh, as we circle around, um, you know, I had this... Uh, week at the stone and um it was interesting for me too i only did two nights where it was composed music and all the rest were improvised and i again i just feel like um i've surrounded myself or i'm a part of a community that is just i i feel like i get tons from yeah you know and really i i feel like on any given night or week i could call people up and we could put on a good show yeah you know yeah and i feel like like this show that I just talked about with Stuart, you know, you just never know. It was an at that venue that 
wanted my um, identification. There was an audience of about 50 or 60 people. And, really? And people dug it, you know, and it was all improvised music. It was four different things. And I was just surprised. Like sometimes people really are interested. Yeah. You just never know. Well, they just have to know about it. Right. Right. It has to be. Yeah. But still, I, you know, I'm surprised sometimes. Yeah. Because the night before we had played and, you know, it was three rock bands that played before us. And that was a bigger audience, if you will. But Right. But maybe not as engaged of an audience. No, they when we were playing, they were like, "Oh, well, kind of, what's this?" Yeah, like the second venue, it felt like, for lack of a better term, it felt like my tribe. It felt like, oh, it felt like a, you know, a people, party. Yeah, right. People were there supporting each other. And, yeah, uh, were interested in people taking chances and yeah. You know. I think we've done good. I think so too. Thank you so much for talking, Chris. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, man. All right, that was Chris Cochran. Did you guys enjoy that? Um, I have to say, I got a lot out of that one. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for coming over and doing the talk. Uh, as I recall, the weather was kind of nasty the day he came over, so extra thanks. Um, if you enjoyed that, if you're curious about Chris, uh, who he is, what he's been up to, what he is up to, go to thechriscochran.com. Thechriscochran.com. If you're enjoying this show, go to 5049records.com. Check out some past episodes. Uh, maybe pick up a CD if you guys still do that. And that's it. We'll be back next week. Until then, I hope you guys are all doing well. Talk to you soon. <laughs>